We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening with the sehr bekannt Klaus Badenhagen, who reports, of course, from Taiwan for German media. Guten Tag, Gavin. There we go. And Taipei-based freelance journalist Nick Aspenwall. Good to be here, Gavin. Tonight we'll be discussing the pending relaxation of some coronavirus guidelines, no more regulating of face mask purchases, domestic travel subsidies and consumer vouchers, the video game industry and coronavirus, a contentious proposal concerning legislation governing Taiwan's relationship with Hong Kong and a draft plan within the coming week outlining how the government can help Hong Kong citizens seek asylum here in Taiwan and the first anniversary of the legalisation of same-sex marriage. But we'll begin with the latest coronavirus-related news from here in Taiwan this week, where the Central Epidemic Command Centre continued to report no new coronavirus cases, meaning the total number of infections here in Taiwan since the pandemic began late last year remains at 441 as of the time we're recording this show. Taiwan has also now not reported any domestically transmitted coronavirus cases since April the 12th. And as a result of that, Health Minister Chen Shih-jong announced on Wednesday that social distancing seating arrangements at public venues will now be relaxed from June the 7th. According to the Health Minister, restrictions on the number of people allowed to gather at cultural and leisure events will be lifted, while restaurants will no longer be required to install table dividers as long as there is sufficient space between tables. Social distancing seating arrangements will also be lifted on trains, concert halls, theatres, as well as at baseball stadiums. However, the health minister says people will still need to wear face masks. But the government is not in any hurry to allow people to travel to Taiwan, however, still. And the health minister told reporters that safety within Taiwan and the opening of the borders are two different matters. And he said that border controls cannot be relaxed simply because the threat of contracting the disease domestically is low. Meanwhile, Premier Su Jung Chung earlier this week said that Taiwan will only relax its border controls when other countries become safe. And Economics Minister Shen Rongjin has announced that surgical face mask rationing will be lifted and face masks will now be available on the open market from June the 1st, with the government no longer relegating the prices of said face masks. Now, the Economics Minister says that surgical mask production has now increased from the 1.88 million per day seen in January to about 20 million per day now. Now, the government, though, will continue to requisition 8 million surgical face masks per day, but manufacturers will now be allowed to sell to buyers both here in Taiwan and also export their face masks freely. But if the domestic inventory falls below 100 million face masks, the government will need to requisition 12 million per day to ensure an adequate supply for consumers here in Taiwan in the event of another outbreak. And the Ministry of Foreign Affairs says that it plans to help local companies export what they're calling micro-surgical face mask factories amid the continuing global need for well-said face masks. Now, according to the Ministry, it will be offering these factories Factories to interested international buyers through Taiwan's overseas representative offices. Now, if you're interested, a micro-surgical face mask factory consists of 20 production lines. And once completed, it has a daily production of some 2 million face masks. And apparently the factories can also be converted to produce N95 or R95 face masks as needed. And National Development Council Minister Gong Ming-shin this week said the government is now finalising details of its proposal to issue consumer vouchers to consumers, basically, which is aimed at reviving spending due to the coronavirus pandemic. And Gong says the initial plan is to allow anyone, regardless of age, income level 
or anything else for that matter, to pay 1,000 NT to obtain 3,000 NT worth of vouchers to use at stores, to buy train tickets and to pay taxi fares. The government is also looking at the possibility of offering the 3,000 NT worth of vouchers at a discounted rate to low-income households and the disadvantaged. And Transport Minister Lin Jialong says the public will be able to claim domestic travel subsidies from July the 1st as the government seeks to encourage travel here in Taiwan to boost the tourism sector and the economy. So, Klaus, where shall we begin here? You wore a face mask to the office today, so we'll start with face masks. The deregulating of the face masks. A good thing? A timely thing? There was so much good stuff in your extensive monologue, Gavin. I don't really know where to start, but good thing you didn't forget we are also here. <laughs> yeah, let's start with the face mask. Um, I mean, we all remember those um, long lines of people waiting in outside pharmacies back in March, April. This was almost an iconic image, I think, at least when you do TV reporting about Taiwan. It was really good stuff, and you wanted to capture that. But then all of a sudden, those lines were gone, and pharmacists told me that, yeah, it's relaxed a lot now. That was when they um, changed the rationing system to nine masks every 14 days. So you could go once every two weeks instead of once every week. Uh, That was a really good step, I think. And now it's relaxed to a level where you can even buy them on the free market again soon, I guess. So, um, yeah, I I heard that some of us did stock up in January just in time before the rationing set in. Yeah, but the word hoarding must not be used in such circumstances. No, you could get into trouble, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I mean, the the whole rationing system and distribution system, I think, was really, really well done, and it was one of the reasons why the Taiwanese, by and large, had, like, um, ease of mind, and, and they knew that they were being taken care of. So it was a big reason why why the government was perceived as doing as well as they did, I think. And Nick, did you queue up for any masks outside pharmacies? Um, well, I um, I didn't, actually. I um, Thankfully, I, oh, I don't know. If I you weren't mugging elderly people for their masks, <laughs> were you? Um, I was not. I was, um, you know, I was, well, I... I I arrived back in Taipei in March, um, in the middle of March. So it was right when, you know, the queues were starting to get very long. Um, Before I came back to Taipei, um, Taiwan's mask production and rationing systems were already becoming the envy of much of the world. It became, just as you said, Klaus, um, it was... It became very evident that through, um, you know, through this decision to ramp up production, to ration masks and to keep them very affordable... Um, controlled by the government, that Taiwan was caring for and communicating with its people. Um, of course, the the entire world is, has heard of the miracle of Taiwan now that it did not have to lock down, that it's kept the um, level of cases so low. So this is a point, I suppose, where um, people in Taiwan expected we would get to this point. And um, it must also be a um, a source of pride to say we can remove the rationing controls now and producing 20 million masks every day. Um, and, and of course, that is Klaus, really... we can export them now. Yeah, you can. Um, too, yeah. A lot of countries, I mean, other countries also did their best to try to ramp up production, but I'm, I think not at a level of success like Taiwan did. So, yeah, I guess maybe some additional income streams for the economy here. But also, you can, in Taiwan, you can also buy them. At the free market now, they want to keep the rationing system. You will still be able to go and say, "I want my nine masks for five NT each," 
But also the government expects that the price on the free market, once they become available, will actually be even lower than the 5 NT each, which mm. I almost cannot find feasible. <laughs> <laughs> and Nick, oh, what, social distancing is going to be basically removed from our lifestyles from now, and people will be, be able to sit on trains, go to concert halls, go to theatres, see a show, and apparently they're going to remove the glass dividers from restaurants, mm. only if you're with people that you know. Only if you're with people that you know. Apparently, they're saying that you can, the restaurants will be able to remove the glass dividers if you're with a group. So if you go to your family, obviously, you won't need dividers. But if you're sitting, obviously, near people that you don't know, you can still have dividers. But they took such great care to like glue them to the tables with sticky tape and stuff. So how else that's supposed to work? I guess they'll leave some of them if you're eating with strangers, right? Yeah, yeah, some yeah, of yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, some of the ramen shops I go to, you know, you crunch in there. I think that will, I think that will keep peace of mind, right? Perhaps there's people who don't want the dividers to be removed. That's know, true. Gives yeah, you a yeah. bit of, um, but yeah, once once again, um, it, it shows that there's a um, a public confidence in um, how Taiwan has contained this virus, and um, at the same time, I think that lots of people in Taiwan will be happy to see some of these things like regular face mask wearing, um, the dividers between you and that guy right next to you at the ramen shop who you don't know. I think. Um, I think Taiwanese people have been happy um, in general for these things to become part of our lives because they know that it's um, helping keep this, um, yeah, keep Taiwan the the way it is um, and keep the virus contained. But you pers- would you personally be going to a concert hall with maybe 500 people now, or do you think you'll be going? Oh, I think I'll wait a couple of weeks or a month. Mm-hmm. That's that's a very good question. I think I, I, I something I haven't really thought about yet because just the um, the concept of doing that in our current world is so hard to wrap my head around. Um, so I can't say that I would. But um, if I but if you look at it um, if you look at it from a just a rational standpoint um, in Taiwan, I'm sure a lot of people will. And I can't say that it's necessarily um, there's anything wrong with doing that here. We also need to mention that a lot of these social distancing guidelines have uh, been followed in Taiwan more or less half-heartedly because the situation was so relaxed and it didn't really get serious. So on the MRT, on buses, yeah, they really want you to wear the masks. But, for example, vendors at traditional markets, they uh, were not wearing masks for a long time and they're handling a lot of cash and the fresh produce they hand out. So that would really make sense. Mm-hmm. And then they said, no, they have to. And then they did for a short time. But now if you go there, half of them are not wearing them again. And also the social distancing in restaurants. They had these stickers mm-hmm. on the chairs like, don't sit here, only sit here. From my experience, a lot of people just didn't care and they nobody mm-hmm. told them to. And we've seen plenty of restaurants and cafes that just didn't do it, right? Just yeah, you've got your little cafe, and it's just as packed as always. Um, there's more mask wearing, but as you said, it's been a bit half-hearted. And Nick, what about these consumer coupons and travel subsidies? Well, it's going to be, um, a, I think, really um, a welcome development for um, for Taiwanese people, um, you know, who might want to get down to the south or to the east coast, hit the beach in the summer. Um, also for, you know, the, the um, travel industry has just been so hard hit everywhere in the world, including here in Taiwan and um, foreign tourism. It does not seem like it's coming back anytime soon. So um, just putting a little jolt into the domestic travel industry is um, going to make a lot of people happy, hopefully. Yeah, but can you walk 
me through how this is supposed to work because from what I'm reading is you need to prove that you spent a thousand NT first and then they will give you a three thousand NT voucher for like common purchases and, and shops and stuff. That's what I saw as well. Yeah, I mean, it's like everybody is spending more than a thousand NT per month on stuff. So why not just give the vouchers to everyone? What's the logic behind this? That's what some have said. Like, of course, there's been calls for giving hmm. money. Of course, Nick. Some the right to just yeah. Right. Um, well, yeah. No, I, I I have some of the same questions. So you spend you spend a thousand NT, and then the money is dispersed. This just to show that you are, um, because I had seen that it's for certain areas as well of where you're traveling, or there's at least like highlighted areas where they would like to promote tourism. Um, yeah, possibly exactly how it works. Um, it seemed like it. You know, maybe a little bit confusing, but I'm still not that sure. And of course, um, Nick, the, the opposition came to you and said, "Why don't you just give like pay cash to people? Do you, do you think they should pay cash to people, or do you think the voucher system works better? Because of course, people could just save the cash and not spend it." Right, of course, and I'm sure that's what the um, that's what the voucher system is going for to. Um, because they want to, you know, they want to control when the money is being um, is going to be spent, when it's going to go back into the economy. If people do get cash, they may put it away. They may spend it on other things. Um, well, well, we did, we did have uh, stimulus vouchers like back in two thousand nine. Yeah, think. the Mar administration issued yeah, them. Yeah. I think they just handed them out, and they were to be used like cash. Like you, you took this piece of paper, uh, official government stamp on it, and you went to a shop, and then you exchanged it. Basically, um, I mean, this could work. the way now. I think it's like they need to set up a registration database where you have to upload or go to the government place and show them proof of purchase, and then you get watched. Sounds sounds a little bit too complicated for me, but maybe I just don't get it. <laughs> anyway, on previous shows, we've talked about how the coronavirus pandemic is affecting the local economy and also the local high tech sector. But today, we'll be taking a look at how the coronavirus pandemic is affecting video game developers here in Taiwan. And I talked with Solomon Temo the founder and CEO of the Playarium Game Development Studio in Taipei, about the situation. Good evening, Solomon. Hey, good evening, Gavin. So, video game development in Taiwan and the coronavirus. So, what did your company begin to feel the effects of the pandemic? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so, I think for us, we started to feel the effects, um, I think, around January, February, around February, going into March. We were seeing kind of ripples, and um, at that time, we were going to a game show in uh, Anaheim um, to, you know, to show off our first game. And um, we were starting to see, you know, kind of like um, some of our clients, uh, you know, kind of slowing down, communication slowing down. Um, uh, just, we, were just, we were just starting to see drips and drabs of the impact of, of, of how it may, may affect us and the developers so around. Around February, end of February, beginning of March, I would say, was when we started to first feel a few things from the from the coronavirus. Of course, when you began to feel the effects of the pandemic with other companies you're working with, I mean, what did you immediately do? Did you send all your employees to work at home, or you or, you, or did you stay in the office? Well, we'd always been we, uh, the management team uh, internally. We'd always been monitoring, you know, what the government was saying, what the CD uh, CDECC. I always get the acronym wrong, but. We were monitoring, you know, the news, the website, looking at the data. Uh, I think it's very, very important, looking at that information. And we were already set up to work remotely. So, you know, any one of our employees could work remotely if needed. Um, 
So we were monitoring the situation, making sure that we were prepared, making sure that if we had to shut down, that how could we still work on our clients' projects? Um, and if we had to shut down, how could we still ship our, our game? So uh, there was a lot of kind of, you know, technical um, witchcraft going on, making sure that we could either um, let the employees take their PCs home or remote access on certain servers. But there's an interesting <clears throat> twist for game development. <clears throat> for, for games, we sometimes have to use special hardware um, for console games, like uh, they call them development kits. And each of the platform holders, like Microsoft, Nintendo, Sony, they have specific requirements about where those development kits can be, and you have to ensure that there's a certain level of security, which is understandable, and that doesn't make it conducive to working from home. So in the end, we managed to set up a way where <clears throat> if we needed to use these special hardware kits, uh, team members could remote access them from their home to a PC like in the office. So those are just some kind of technical examples of you know, how we um, made sure that if we were going to shut down, how we could still work within these kind of sensitive um, situations. But has, has the virus affected any of your release schedules or any of your communications with other companies? Yes, it did. It did. I, um, you know, um, the first thing that it affected was a lot of game shows. And a lot of the game shows is where, you know, companies will go not to just show off their games, but also to do business meetings, to generate new businesses. So with one of those events, um, you know, canceled or moved to digital, it became, um, it, it, it shifted a lot of people's schedules. Then also, uh, uh, because when you want to release a game, or in our case, when we were trying to release Georifters, we were still going through some approval phases with the platform holders where they review your game and see um, does it meet their technical requirements or you know, quality requirements. And because um, they, they, were, um, they didn't have as many people in the office or they had to slow down or move people to remote work, uh, it meant that uh, communication time or review processes took a lot longer um, than, than usual. So we had to look at our dates and try to think, okay, well, you know, if things are going to slow down, what would be the next best date um, for us to aim for? And that's kind of tricky because you want to aim for a date that um, allows your game to stand out, but also is not too far away from, you know, um, for players who are waiting, anticipating to, to play your game. And do you think the larger game manufacturers, such as Electronic Arts, Blizzard, Ubisoft and Rockstar, are going through the same things you're going through? Or do you think they're suffering a bit more? Um, I think each one of them is going through... I don't think all of them are going through the same thing that we went through because it depends on how ready they were to remote work. Um, I, obviously, I can't speak to the details of EA, Rockstar, and some of those games companies, but from what I know and from some of the studios that we work closely with, <clears throat> I can give you some examples that <clears throat> for some studios, um, they were just not ready to set up um, remote working, working from home, because... You know, um, they just didn't have the infrastructure in place or the security in place. And for some of them, they didn't even have a remote working policy. Oh, actually, that brings me to a good point. Um, you asked me earlier about what were some of the things that we did to um, prepare for the coronavirus. And one of the things that we did really early on was that we sat down and we started to write up what is the remote working policy. Because a lot of companies actually don't have that. We didn't have it. We had a we had a lightweight version where we kind of said, yeah, you know, we're okay for you to work from home and so on and so on. But when you have to really um, double down on, okay, 
this is an actual benefit or this is an actual policy that you offer employees, you need to make sure that you have a very clear, uh, uh, clear communication of what is your policy for working from home. What are the do's and the don'ts? How do you check in? How do you log your work? What is the communication? And if, something go, if, if, you, if you misbehave or if you do something wrong, what are the consequences? So a lot of companies um, didn't have or don't have a remote working policy. And I think going forward, after this coronavirus thing kind of wraps up, you'll find that a lot of companies write this remote working policy into their, into their charter. And whether they do remote work full-time or not, they'll have it there, you know, as, as, a, as a security or as a just-in-case. But going back to um, some of the uh, bigger companies, some of them were more prepared to work from home um, than others. Uh, some of them had, you know, their security all set up and they were ready to go. Some of them were really great. Some of them were, were, were ready, had the money and had the budget to just say, oh, hey, you know, here's a PC for you. It's fast enough and powerful enough for you to run what you need to run. Um, some of them provided them with uh, allowances for them to buy equipment if they didn't have them. Um, I know that for some studios, um, even though they allowed their employees to work remotely, some of the employees preferred to actually go into the office because it was a lot quieter. You know, now, now it was like a safe haven for them. Um, we had to do quite a few meetings with some of our clients um, over uh, Skype or Zoom or online. And for those that were working from home, their internet connection, some of them, the internet connection was not so great and some was good. And that can be problematic because you're trying to have a call with like, you know, eight people and then, you know, three or four of them are frozen uh, and they need to, you know, we need to wait for them to kind of get back in the, in the call. So I think there was a lot of teething problems in terms of making sure that people were set up correctly, you know, at home. And the bigger companies also need to, tr need to also worry about that too. Um, they would also have the similar issue about dev kits or special hardware um, because a lot of the bigger companies will be a lot more um, concerned about ensuring the sensitivity um, uh, for the project that they're working on. They don't want any leaks, right? So they have to make sure that everything is still airtight, even if you, even if you work from home. And when do you see these game shows starting up again? Are you pessimistic or optimistic they'll start this year? Or do you see these big video game shows and splashy conventions you go to to promote your games starting maybe next year? Uh, I think that's a really interesting question because um, I'm very optimistic about it. Uh, and I can tell you why. is because what's happened actually is that a lot of these game shows have now... Um, converted to a digital show. So, uh, for example, uh, there's E3, uh, there's Gamescom. These are, these, are big sh these are big shows that happen every year. E3 is a game show that happens in the U.S. Um, on a yearly basis. Gamescom is one of the biggest game shows in the world that happens in uh, Cologne in Germany. And these shows, um, rather than just kind of cancel or push back, some of them kind of reinvented themselves and said, okay, we're going to do this show online only. So they arrange ways for you to stream or show your game or communicate your game uh, in an online presence, in an online platform. So I think for the rest of this year, most of the significant or bigger shows will um, go to online only. Um, and um, those will be, obviously these will be shows that uh, in, their in their respective countries were hardest hit by the pandemic or are still uh, enforcing um, self-isolation or work from home. Um, there will be some game shows, I, and this is obviously a personal opinion, but uh, there will be some game shows in countries that are less hard 
hit or less affected uh, by corona or have opened up earlier that will slowly be able to, you know, do a physical kind of game show, but with a lot more um, strict requirements on the spacing or the arrangement or the hygiene of, of how that, that show is, um, is set up. And then I think that things will slowly, uh, I was going to say normal, but I think there'll be a new normal um, going into next year. I think that you, even though the game shows may come back, maybe around, and I'm really guessing here, maybe around February, March, even if they come back around that time, I believe that the online version of these game shows will still be very, very prominent and factor into um, their planning. So it will be a hybrid of, okay, here's the physical presence of the, of the game show, and here's, you can also experience it online. And actually, we were seeing that um, like a year or two before where some games companies would do their own digital directs, their own online kind of conference um, uh, to, um, to stream to their audience. And I think now it's just kind of like, okay, well, this is more accepted now. Um, the coronavirus just accelerated some of our plans or helped us to um, scale it up on a massive scale. So let's keep it and let's see how we can adapt it and apply it to our physical presence. That was me in conversation with Solomon Temowo, the founder and CEO of Taipei-based video game development studio Playarium. Now, we have to take a short break here on Taiwan This Week, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and President Tsai Ing-wen opened a big old can of criticism from all sides here. That after she took to her Facebook page to say that if Beijing implements its controversial security law in Hong Kong, she could suspend legislation governing Taiwan's relationship with the former British territory. Now, Tsai was referring to the laws and regulations regarding Hong Kong and Macau affairs, and she cited Article 60 of that as the basis for any suspension of the act, saying that it states that the cabinet may request the president order a suspension of all or part of the provisions of the Act. Now, of course, Beijing went and passed the National Security Law for Hong Kong, but before it did that, Tsai's comments had already started a firestorm of criticism, with KMT Chairman Johnny Jung suggesting that the suspension of the law was a slap in the face for the DPP's support for Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement, while the Taiwan People's Party and the New Power Party both said the abolition of the law would be counteractive to the government's pledged support for the Hong Kong democracy movement. Now, the KMT, the TPP and the NPP are calling for an amendment to the legislation instead of its simple suspension saying it would be amended and make it easier for residents of Hong Kong to seek political asylum here in Taiwan. Meanwhile, the Mainland Affairs Council says it will likely complete a draft plan within the coming week outlining how the government plans to help Hong Kong citizens seek asylum here in Taiwan. And Council Minister Chen Ming-Tong has said that the current proposal is for the government and private sector to closely work together to offer assistance to Hong Kongers who wish to move to Taiwan and the plan will include a government budget to facilitate Hong Kong residency rights, settlement and social assistance costs. Meanwhile, Foreign Minister Joseph Wu this week in an interview on Fox News warned that basically, well, if China passes its national security law for Hong Kong, it could well take action against Taiwan in the future. And he mentioned possible military action. 
Nick, there we go. What do we take away from this? Mm. Comments by Tsai about Hong Kong started a firestorm because they, maybe they got a bit misunderstood. The opposition party is saying, we've got an idea how we can help the Hong Kong people and the Mainland Affairs, Affairs Council coming out and saying, we're working on a plan already. Well, this says um, the issue of Hong Kongers who come to Taiwan and intend to stay for a longer time, whether they are seeking asylum or seeking um, another form of long-term stay, whether that be studying or finding work here. This has been a very, very complicated issue for um, for quite some time, and um, the Thai administration has taken a lot of criticism for it over the last year or so. Um, but it's um, so the so the law that you mentioned that Tsai Ing-wen has um, you know proposed suspending. Um, this has been seen as the mechanism that could potentially allow Hong Kongers to stay longer in Taiwan. Article 18 of that law is the one that has um, provisions saying that um, residents of Hong Kong and Macau can be assisted should there be political. Um, should there be a political reason in Hong Kong or Macau for Taiwan to provide that assistance? Um, so there have been um, civil society groups have been calling for Taiwan to use um, to openly use that article to grant asylum to Hong Kongers who are here. Um, it, in practice, the government has been hesitant to do that publicly, but there is a whole host of political reasons. Um, Beijing would not be very happy with that. Um, in reality, they found ways um, kind of behind the scenes to help Hong Kongers who are here. Um, but the um, but the announcements of the last week, um, of course, we'll see what the Mainland Affairs Council comes up with publicly. Um, but it has created a bunch, um, I think, just a lot of confusion and a lot of debate over over what's going on. Um, and it's tough to clarify such a complex situation, especially when you are towing the line of not wanting um, Beijing to come out and say Taiwan is intervening in um, domestic affairs. What the government is basically stressing right now is that the existing regulations in this act are already um, quite good for people from Hong Kong to come to Taiwan. I, I mean, they have it definitely have it easier than PLC citizens who are Mm. regulated by other laws and apparently in some cases the um, regulations are also softer for people from Hong Kong than for general other foreigners who are regulated by the general immigration mm. laws. For example, if you want to move to Taiwan on an investment visa, you um, only need to invest 200,000 US dollars if you come from Hong Kong, but um, I think from what I read, a million US dollars if you come from any other place. So um, they said for these people who are already covered by the existing regulations, it's already um, sufficient, so, so we don't really need to tweak a lot there. But apparently what they want to do now, and they haven't really explained it yet, is they want to expand the reach maybe of this Article 18 provisions, so people who would really need to come to Taiwan because of um, their freedoms and safety are threatened in, in Hong Kong, but they do not fit the existing Regulations like student work, investment, etc. They have some official way for how to deal with these cases and have more of them come over here. But they also want to screen everybody. They want to make sure there are not some covert party members amongst them and so on. And Nick, I mean, do you think obviously we're talking about Hong Kong nationals, Hong Kong citizens with two hundred thousand US dollars to their name to start with? Yeah. 
And, of course, there's lots of them that don't have 200,000 US dollars to their name. So, obviously, the government is thinking of funding these people and paying for them. Obviously, social, they need some, they need funding when they get here. They need a place to live when they get here. Do you think this might meet with some resistance in Taiwan? If, if local people see that the government is funding people from Hong Kong, giving them an apartment, giving them money, whereas people here that are unemployed, don't have an apartment, aren't getting the same help? Right. In practice, and as as we've seen before, there have been quite a few of these cases already where people from Hong Kong who do not have the $200,000 come to Taiwan, sometimes not legally because their travel documents are confiscated back in Hong Kong. Um, some of these protesters, um, the, the Hong Kongers who come here, a lot of them are very young. Um, some are students who um, go through circumstances such as they they go to protest and their parents in Hong Kong will um, you know kick them out of their home. So um, some of the Hong Kongers who come here are already quite vulnerable. What we've seen so far is that um, NGOs and we've seen religious institutions, um, non-governmental actors have funded those Hong Kongers who are in need. Um, the government has been hesitant to provide direct financial assistance because there is a potentially, I think they see that as crossing a line, both domestically and perhaps with how Beijing perceives Taiwan's involvement. So there have long been calls for a more direct mechanism to help Hong Kongers. Once again, in practice, it's always been a very complicated situation because you've... Um, because people have been getting assistance, it's just been through very unofficial and um, you know behind-the-scenes means. I think there's also a debate going on about does Taiwan owe some kind of help, owe some kind of financial support to these people from Hong Kong or not. And But now some of those activists who already made it to Taiwan, they're also coming out now on press conferences and say, no, um, Taiwan doesn't owe us anything. We are just grateful for every chance that we get to be here in safety. So... Um, seeing that Taiwan also does not have a general refugee and asylum law in place, I also don't think they will be handing out regular cash payments like subsidizing their living. Um, all of a sudden, that would really be a big systematic change. I, I think they want to um, keep it to like exceptional cases and um, don't don't want to have new laws in place for this. Just find a way to deal with this situation which is changing really quickly right now because uh, China moved so fast in, in introducing this new security law so Taiwan just needs to react to that and they even said they don't it, it will not take a month until these rules are in place, it will be much faster and Nick, of course, there's concern also that Hong Kongers might use Taiwan as simply as a stepping stone. So they'll come to Taiwan, get all their paperwork done, care of the government, care of an NGO, and then go, well, I'm in Taiwan, I can now I move on to America, I move on to Australia, I'll go to Britain, etc. Well, if, um, if they move on, they move on. <laughs> what's, there, there's what, yeah, what's the issue with that? I mean, I, I, think, um, I don't think that's going to be a... I mean, if Taiwan opens its doors, um, if Taiwan welcomes people to come, there's, it's more likely that they're going to stay. Um, so I don't think that becomes an issue in the long term. When I've spoken to um, asylum seekers um, also from China who have come here, traditionally um, asylum seekers from China who are able to make it to Taiwan, Taiwan becomes a, a stepping stone for a third country. 
Taiwan often um, seeks to repatriate them to the U.S. or Europe, Canada. Um, Canada. And lots of them, once they get here, they want to stay. Um, they find it impossible. But if those doors become open, it's more likely that, um, that people will stay. And for Hong Kongers, it's the same. And of course, recently on the PTT website, the chat lines here on the interweb, there's been people saying that Beijing could be using this. They could Beijing could use this situation to divide the Taiwan public about this. It could try to turn the Taiwan public against the Hong Kong people. Sort of, they're coming to your country to take your jobs and your women and your children and your men. I think the the bigger concern really has been um, Taiwanese that are afraid that Hong Kongers could who have links to Beijing could come and and could spy. There have actually there have been cases of um, well there have been cases of like just um, Taiwanese worrying about this. Um, the same with um, people coming from China. But in reality, there is already um, I mean, there there has been a vetting process. Um, people are even if there's not an officially um, if there's not a systemic screening process. People who do come to Taiwan and stay longer from Hong Kong. Um, you know, do they? They are screened just like they are from China. Um, it's um, yeah. Once again, from you know, from what I've learned about this, it's you know, it's generally um, it's um, th- what they're talking about now is formalizing a lot of what already exists, right? Um, just making it you know, making it more. Maybe that will maybe that will help with um, the public just having trust in people coming here from Hong Kong. So I, th- Kraft, I think in, in general, Taiwanese just have a lot of goodwill towards Hong Kong and the people from Hong Kong. And I think there's hardly any other group of potential immigrants that I can think of that would be as much welcomed here and uh, would have it easier to, to integrate and fit into the society than people from Hong Kong. Don't you, don't, you don't see any anti-Hong Kong or xenophobia happening? I don't really think so. I mean, there's been some rumors that in the past when Hong Kong was... Hong Kong was the beacon of like free economy in Asia and they were doing even better than Taiwan that some people in Hong Kong were like looking down on Taiwan as the not as successful country cousins but I don't think that really plays a role anymore. Right. I've seen I've seen that as well and yeah I don't it's not something that you really come across these days right it's mostly just a lot of goodwill for for Hong Kong and support for the pro democracy movement there. And before we go this week, LGBTQ groups and individuals were celebrating the first anniversary of Taiwan's same-sex marriage bill going into effect. Of course, lawmakers passed the bill legalizing gay marriage on May the 17th of last year, and it went into effect a week later on May the 24th of 2019, making Taiwan the first country in Asia to recognize same-sex marriage. Now, looking at some same-sex marriage numbers over the past year, the Minister of the Interior said a total of 4,021 gay couples have gotten married married here. Basically, since then, the majority of the registered marriages were female couples, which stood at 2,773, or 69% of the total, while 1,248 male couples got married. New Taipei apparently led the nation's same-sex couple registration numbers with 815 marriages, and that was followed by Taipei and Kaohsiung. Now, a majority of the same-sex marriages were between Taiwanese nationals, but 189 of them involved one spouse who was a foreign national. So, Klaus, a year after same sex marriage it's there were some complaints of course though adopting children and more transnational same-sex yeah, there, marriages there are some things where 
people are saying that should still be fixed. But in general, I mean, look at the numbers. Quite impressive. There's more than 4,000 same-sex marriages. That means every day more than 10 couples are getting married all over Taiwan and every day and every day. So I think it really becomes a part of the fabric of this society. It probably already has become. And, you know, all these worries about it, it will cause divisions and, and whatnot, I think have been, have been disproved by now. Right. We've seen um, there was a um, I mean, we've seen surveys um, recently that have said that, you know, it's already become just an accepted part of life where there's um, all of the, you know, um, when the opposition groups talked about how it could potentially so, you know, cause societal discord. We have not seen that. Um, we've seen that, um, as you said, um, over 10 same-sex couples are being married every day. Um, I think that the, um, so for the LGBTQ community here, they are still fighting for um, things such as um, full adoption rights and the ability to um, unrestricted transnational marriages. So being able to marry spouses from countries where same-sex marriage is not legal. Um, I think yeah. that should be an easy fix, actually. If if the um, ruling party wants to do it, they, they would be able to. I mean, Taiwan likes to look at how do other countries implement laws in similar situations, and then they like to take what they like from what they can see there. And I think there's a lot of countries where it just doesn't matter if if the um, foreign uh, partner could also get married in his own country or not. So, I mean, amending mm -hmm. this regulation, I think it, it could be done really quickly. Right. We remember, and, and, and they're right to keep up the pressure on that, of course. Definitely. Yeah, we remember that on May seventeenth last year, the New Power Party put forth an um, you know an article to the um, to the law that was passed that would allow for transnational marriages, um, which did not pass. Yeah, um, at, but at, there's at, been at a that lot point, more. I, I think they just didn't want to spend any political capital right, and they time used on every that. The, the situation back then was really a bit heated up, but now that has really calmed down. Definitely, definitely, and that's what um, I mean. That's what people said back then as well. When I when I spoke to people after um, after May seventeenth, that of course the DPP used a lot of political capital just to get this thing done. Um, I know that there are groups that are planning to revisit the issue in the near future. Um, so I, I agree that's something um, that's something that we can possibly very easily see progress on. I, th I think amending the adoption regulations that would be a bit harder because that mm. would rile up those um, protect the family groups again, and then they would come out again. So this would lead to more of a debate in society again. I think. I agree. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here this week, here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Klaus Badenhagen. Great to be here. Auf Wiedersehen. And Nick Aspenwall. Great to be here, Gavin. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.